Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes and soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 59. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like the epic Jim Carrey mid-90s comedy run, why Charlie Kaufman's writing is emotional nightmare fuel, and the B-movie brilliance of Kevin Smith. No quote too minor, no side plot too small, this is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld level daily observations. Last night, I watched the first, that's right, the first ever Marvel comic book movie adaptation. This is numero uno. This is the godfather of the movie industry that we now have in 2020. There'd be no Iron Man, there'd be no Thor, There'd be no Avengers, none of that stuff. So can you guess what it was? I'll give you a clue. It was 1986. It involves space travel, multiple universes. Any closer? <laughs> Any closer? I mean, there's no shot that you even have the faintest idea. I bet my house, my car, my life savings, that you don't have the foggiest idea because it was a major bomb at the movie theaters. It destroyed an all-time director's career, and it's one of the most hilariously dumb movies of all time. You have any thoughts about it? I mean, I guarantee you don't, because I, I didn't. And I, I only learned this afterwards when I did some research on it. So that's how little is given to this movie. It's, ladies and gentlemen, the Marvel god of creation was Howard the Duck. <laughs> A movie so gut-wrenchingly awful that it imploded George freaking Lucas's career. That's right, Hollywood canceled the dude that created Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi a year later because of the utterly embarrassing tire fire that was Howard the Duck. <laughs> so, frame of reference for those of you who don't know what this is, Howard was a normal three foot two duck from a duck world where rather than humans evolving from apes, the kind of human species evolved from ducks. <laughs> it's, it's insane. And Howard's this cigar-smoking, middle-aged, ad-jingle executive that miraculously gets sucked into Cleveland, Ohio, in our world, where he fights using duck foo, <laughs> falls in love and, with humans, and battles intergalactic, telekinetic, pyrokinetic space demons, and he has no superpowers of his own either. He's just fighting as a, just a small guy. And it's incredible. I mean, like, you know how we talk about B-level movies, C-level movies? This is a Z-level movie. If there's anything below Z if that, like, I haven't heard of, let me know. Because <laughs> it's, it's there. I laughed the entire time watching this movie. It was great. I mean, it's just, I can't believe this, like, exists. So if you have a television, run and watch it. It's so bizarre. <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime for, I think, three bucks. And you can own it for five bucks. I would, I would own it. It's just, I'm going to watch it again tonight, I think. And it just makes me proud to be a human being because we can create such a wide spectrum of weird. Like, our brains are truly marvelous that you can create, you know, Picassos, but you can also create this. <laughs> I even listened to a two-hour podcast after the movie about the movie because I needed more Howard in my life. And I'm also doing a pod on Howard the Duck on Sunday with my buddy MG. So I wanted all the firepower to discuss this masterpiece of a failure. Apparently the comic book it's based off of, Howard would battle like ninja cows 
and cannibalistic gingerbread man. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that they said, you know, this is how we're going to start Marvel. It's unbelievable where it's come from, from there. And I go on and on about all the quack puns and surprising amount of nudity for a PG movie. There's a ton of nudity. And this is, this movie was advertised to kids and, you know, it's like a cartoon looking, it's kind of like Daffy Duck came half alive. You know what I mean? He's like kind of a Muppet, but a human Muppet. It's terrifying looking. His eyes look real and like they move like human eyes do. It's really kind of bizarre. And he's from outer space and it's just, oh my God, it's so bizarre. So as a, as a palate cleanser, I want to talk about something more grounded, more rational, more serious as my uh, central topic. I want to talk about a blind lawyer in Hell's Kitchen who beats criminals senseless at night while using his walking stick as he dresses up like a leather daddy version of Satan. Oh, and he's a lawyer during the day, of course. <laughs> That's right. I'm talking about 2003's Ben Affleck's driven superhero movie that is bathed in B-movie glory and needs to be given its due. So remember, kids, comic book movies weren't the well-manicured, no-budget-too-high masterpieces that we see today in 2003. That began in, like, 2008 with Iron Man and the Dark Knight. Before that, the best we could hope for was a great cast hamming it up. You know, they're there for a paycheck. Some fun action that doesn't seem CGI'd, and you can't, like, see the, the wires for special effects. And a snappy script that moved fast. And the best in Breeders era, era of superhero flicks was Spider-Man 2. Shout out Doc Ock. I think Albert Merlina played him. Just gave him a lot more gravitas than he needed. And the special effects were awesome. It comes from Sam Raimi, who was in horror before that. So, I mean, he's got kind of a weird horror action kind of vibe to him. And the other one that really shone was this, the Daredevil movie, with our beloved blind lawyer, Matt Murdock. So small backstory for Double D. That's right. I call Daredevil Double D. We're good friends. Uh, his dad was a prize fighter. He, did, he didn't take a dive in a fight, so he was murdered by the mob. You know, classic origin story for any kind of superhero. The unique thing, though, about Matt is he lost his sight when he was a kid in an acid accident. Which, side note, I don't know how you splash acid only on your eyes very specifically. Like, shouldn't he have some scarring around it or, I mean, some... Some part of his body, but no, just right in the eye. That's all I did. He fell eyes first in a vat of acid, if that's possible. But the cool thing is it heightened the other senses he had. So he could hear things really well, smell. I mean, I think he had almost kind of a sonar. Kind of, that's how they show how he sees in the, in, this, in the movie. Like if he hears something, he sees the vibrations kind of like a bat does, I guess. And it felt super unique as a superpower because rarely are superheroes given a visible handicap. You know, you don't see armless Superman or deaf Batman. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen that way. And Affleck's portrayal of him, he's in this brooding sad sack like he is as Batman. And Batman, he's just sad in the shower and just gruff. In this movie, he's affable and occasionally smart ass and kind of charming. And it reminds me of Goodwill Hunting and Dogma Ben Affleck. And that's the Ben Affleck I like. I miss Ben Affleck when he, before all the turmoil in his life. So sure, in this movie, he has some morose moments and he can, you know, mourn lost comrades in the rain with the best of them. But when he's goofing around, that's the Ben, that's the Ben I like to see. I missed you, Ben. I missed this Ben. So now I said the great, the makings of a great early 2000s superhero film had to be a great cast. And this one does not disappoint. This is a murderer's row of a cast. You have Jennifer Gardner as Electra Nachios. What a fun name, Electra Nachios. She's daughter of a corrupt, wealthy millionaire who gets murdered, and she seeks revenge for her father 
of course, because, you know, in the superhero world, that's, you know, it's, it's a coin flip. It's what it's either you accidentally stumbled on a science experiment or someone in your family got murdered. That's kind of, that's kind of the two uh, origin stories that people go to. And she has these really cool weapons. She's using, I think they're called size. It's called S I S A I. It's these three pronged dagger sword thingies that Raphael and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles rock too. So they're freaking cool. You can flip them in your hands. You know, they're very, they're very, very visually satisfying. So her and Daredevil have this kind of crime fighter chemistry on rooftops. And in real life, Jennifer Gardner and Ben Affleck got married. So I love when that happens. You know what I mean? Like people have chemistry on screen. They fall in love in real life. I don't think it ever works out. But, you know, for those few years, I'm like, good, good. That makes me happy. There's cool fight scenes between the two of them. There's one where they're using seesaws on a playground and like bouncing themselves, which is kind of crazy. And their romantic stuff works more than usual because of their natural chemistry and how, and he's, he's, like I said, he sees uh, everything because of vibrations. So when he sees her for the first time, it's because they're out in the rain and the raindrops are on her face. And that's how he kind of picks up how she looks. Very cool. I've never seen that stuff before. It, It works. And I don't know why, but why is rain so sexy? Like not a clue. But it always works. If in a movie someone's in the rain, if it's in the notebook, you know, I mean, if someone's making their last final pleas for to get back together with someone, it's always in the rain. So why is did rain get the like the sexy gene of all of nature? Like tornadoes aren't sexy, and they're curvaceous and you know, kind of kind of fun looking. Snow's not sexy either. Snow's Christmassy and kind of family. Sun is I don't know. Sun's just hot. <laughs> um, yeah. So rain's pretty much the only sexy thing. I don't think there's any other sexy weather. Mm, no, that's it. So, anyways, going back to the characters, you got Mikey from Swingers. You got John Favre uh, playing Matt's legal partner, Foggy. And you, I, I think too, because John Favre ended up directing Iron the Iron Man movies. I think he picked up some stuff like he's, he picks up his do's and don'ts from Daredevil. So he's like, okay, this works, this doesn't. And this is how I'm going to make my movie. I think you could say Daredevil might be responsible for why Iron Man was awesome. You know, I mean, that, that's not too far a leap. And in the movie, he's the perfect amount of comic relief. Matt just wants to help the innocent and broke folks of Hell's Kitchen. And Foggy wants clients who can actually pay their legal fees. So it's a nice, they have a nice kind of big brother, little brother relationship. You know, Foggy wants money. Matt wants to do good and there's a push and pull between them, but there's love between them. And I also love that Matt can determine the, his honest clients since he can hear people's hearts beat the heartbeats like sonar. So it's a, he's like a human lie detector. That's freaking neat. So if he has someone on the stand and he feels their heart, you know, pumping up, he knows that they're lying and can really press on them. It's almost like a cheat button. I love it. And then on the evil side of this movie, you get the big man, Michael Clark Duncan, love him in the role he was born to play, the Kingpin. So in the comics, uh, the Kingpin also is in the Spider-Man world, and he's not only a criminal genius who's kind of a you know, mob boss, a Michael Corleone kind of vibe, but he's 350 pounds of raw muscle and can throw down when he has to. He can crush Spider-Man almost in two. So Michael Clark Duncan is six foot five, 320 pounds, so it works freaking perfectly. I mean, they're both bald, they're both charming, they seem refined, and... I love Michael Michael Clark Duncan rocking a three-piece custom Italian suit complete with suspenders. And he has one of those diamond top canes that doubles as a deadly weapon and is just meaty hands. And he's doing the wonderfully typical villain plotting while rubbing his hands together 
and smiling deviously. He's always in control until the he's always in control until the last very moment. You know, he's kind of got a plan for everything. And I love how they use his size. Like even when he gets out of cars, the car moves like the car sinks like ten inches when he's in it. And when it comes out, when he gets out of it, the car's like, oh thank God. You know, just like breathes basically. And there's not enough giant actors out there. Being a tall dude myself, I always relish a good, gigantic, smart, big bad. And we got the best here. Rest in peace, Michael Clark Duncan. You were f- freaking great. I mean, this Armageddon, Green Mile, whole nine yards. He's just, he was just a great actor. And then there's the, my favorite part of the movie. So <laughs> this is the absolute insane portrayal of the Kingpin's henchman named Bullseye. This is a man who never misses, you know, hence the name Bullseye. You know, he throws anything, he hits it right on the money, he shoots anyone. It's, you know, a dead shot to the head. I mean, whatever he puts in his hand, if he wants to hit something, he's going to hit it. And this is Colin Farrell. And this is Colin Farrell taking all the restrictor plates off. He's going 250 miles an hour in a school zone. He's completely bald, which he's never done before or after because he's got this great helmet of hair usually. You know, it's that thick, black, lacquer hair. Just fantastic. So it's super jarring that he's just really, really bald. And he has a bullseye cut into his forehead just so you don't forget who he is and what's he's, what, what he's about. You look at him and you're like, Wait, what does this guy do? Oh, yeah, bullseye on his head. Of course he's a bullseye. <laughs> and he's wearing Matrix-level leather jackets, like floor-length leather jackets that are, like, studded. And he's wearing leather pants. He has, like, 37 earrings in both ears. And he has a belt buckle that dispenses ninja throwing stars. <laughs> it's just crazy. He's got a manicured goatee. And he's wearing one of those chunky metal chokers that look like he's about to go to a stain concert. He has all that bad kind of biker, thick silver rings and like heavy bracelets and all. It's and like leather bracelets. It's fantastic. And mind you, none of this is canon for what Bullseye was in the comics. They just kept his power of not being able to miss and basically created whatever wild man early 2000s Colin Farrell would be as a supervillain. I think Colin Farrell probably came in drunk one day and they're like, what do you want to do? He's like, I just want to be me. <laughs> but I don't miss. Can I do that? Like, yeah, sure. What the, what the heck? He's not even, he's even speaking in his native Irish accent for no reason at all, other than it's awesome. He's got a great accent. You can hardly hear what he's saying. <laughs> and the shenanigans he gets into in this movie are hilarious. Like he ricochet flicks a peanut into a loud older woman's mouth on a plane to choke her to death because she's talking too much to him on a plane and he's a hangover. <laughs> like, how great is that? There's a outtake scene that wasn't in the movie where he's just going through the metal detector at the airport and he's just, he's mean mugging like the drug dog and the drug dog backs down and he's just eyeballing everybody and just acting crazy with his arms spread out and just being flamboyant. It's insane. In the movie, he kills a dude in a bar with a piece of a paperclip he flicks into the guy's neck because he felt insulted during a darts game where he won a bunch of money because he was like quadruple hitting bullseyes while chugging a Guinness and no look throwing <laughs> and winning. It's unbelievable. And all this is happening while House of Pain is blaring on the jukebox. Just fantastic. Just mwah. And he's in his own movie, it seems like. I mean, he's on another planet. And it's incredible to see him grandstand in every scene. He stands on moving motorcycles like Jesus, and he kills some dude with 100 yards away with a metal stick. And I just laugh every time. And when he stands over the body, of the guy he killed, he just goes, bullseye! <laughs> and points at the freaking bullseye on his forehead. God bless the subtlety that this movie lacks. 
<laughs> like 93% of why I love this movie is just manic Colin Farrell. But I feel like he doesn't get to access him to this weirdo side of him enough. He's just so good looking that he's pigeonholed into these lead parts because I mean, great. Yes. He's extremely handsome, but he's really at his best when he's frantic, when he's crying, screaming, bouncing off the walls. Weird. I mean, you look at in Bruges, um, what other movies? Wait, in Bruges, uh, seven psychopaths, this God bless this. And I mean, he doesn't get to do that role enough. So he does things in this movie where like he bulges his eyes confidently and it makes him look like he thinks he's going to melt you with telekinetic lasers. I mean, just God bless this man and this role. So I can do a full thing about it, just him in this movie, which I kind of have. That's a good five minute rant. But back to the movie. So the action scenes are really well done and fast moving. You never feel the movie slowing down. It's mindless entertainment. You watch it, consume it, you enjoy it, and you move on. And the best part of this movie, besides Colin Farrell, of course, is the soundtrack. So this was the glory days of new metal, alternative, pop punk, and what a glorious time to be alive. And that's my forever wheelhouse. And you could pop in, I could search new metal playlist on Spotify and be good for the next two weeks. And there was no need for them to blow such catch on a musical budget, but my God, did they do it right. I mean, the, I looked up everyone who was on this uh, soundtrack. They got Seether. They got Drowning Pool, Saliva, Fuel, Nickelback. And by the way, if you're like, uh, Nickelback, you know, Nickelback rocks, okay? That gets put on at any bar. It's like, this is, I mean, it reminds me, everyone still knows that song. It's a, they're, they get made fun of, but everyone, it's catchy stuff. So you, you back off Nickelback. They got Finger Eleven, Hoobastank, Chevelle, and the Pierre de Resistance. Not one, but two songs from modern-day goth siren Amory Lee and her band Evanescence, who were the titans of the early 2000s music scene. They played Bring Me to Life, which is their main, you know, their main hit, as Electric Trains with her side daggers and rips open sandbags that are painted to look like her enemy. And just so great. And the sand ripping out is just, you know, a good visual. And for those of you who don't know this song, go listen right now. Because it's an all-time, universally beloved, blood-pumping, catchy, pop, new metal, forever hit. I mean, I work at a bar, I work at a bar, and still, if I play the song at midnight, everyone knows the words, everyone's fired up. It's just, it's just fantastic. And also, you get the soulful My Immortal song from them, too. And that conveys the love between Electra and Matt. And it adds to the emotion. It just makes it like, oh, they, they really do care for each other. It's just such a 2003 movie. And the music just solidifies it as frozen in time. Like, even everyone's sleek Nokia phones that were a generation before smartphones, you know, when you could only play Snake on the phone. But, like, it was all about getting it small and kind of compact and almost gadget-like looking. It just makes me laugh. <laughs> this movie is such a fun ride. It checks all the boxes for entertaining, well-done drivel. And sometimes that's all you want from a movie. Like, not everything needs to be the social network. So just turn your brain off for a few hours and revel in this Golden Corral-level buffet of low-class pleasure. Please do it now. So I'm going to go watch it again. What the heck? Later.